What's up, fam? This is Jay from Push Black. Now, it's no secret that the economic system is rigged against us, but we have more power than you might think. Push Black's new podcast, Building Black Dollars, explores the daily issues Black folks face financially and the actions we can take right now to solve those problems. So if you're trying to get your money right, tune in to Building Black Dollars by Push Black. Catch it anywhere you listen to podcasts. What's up, fam? It's Jay from Push Black. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Black History Year. Now, earlier this season, we had a powerful interview about Black love. So powerful that we're going to keep the conversation going. So if you need a refresher or haven't listened to that interview about deconstructing Black love with Dr. Diane Stewart, go back and check that out. It'll get you ready for another great conversation with Diane that you'll hear in a minute. In that interview, we learned a lot about love, particularly how, as African people, love is more than romantic. It's heritage. It's community. It's us. Today, we're going to dig into those ideas as we continue this project of African cultural excavation. So let me tell you a bit more about our guest. Dr. Diane Stewart is a professor of religion and African-American studies at Emory University with the focus on religion, culture, and African heritage in the Caribbean and the Americas. She's written several books, including Black Women, Black Love, America's War on African-American Marriage, and Three Eyes for the Journey, African Dimensions of the Jamaican Religious Experience. Her work has been valued so much that she's won numerous awards and fellowships. And today, we're fortunate to be able to learn from such a renowned scholar committed to Black love. In the spirit of that commitment, it's only right that we tell you all a story about Black love. Stay tuned. White supremacy has intruded on our lives in the worst ways. From physical, emotional, and mental torment to our livelihood and overall quality of being, racism has rooted itself in almost every aspect of life, even in love. But before mass media fed us toxic depictions of love, and before white covetous hands raided the continent, and subjugated African people, there was a time when Black love looked far differently than the love we might know. In pre-colonial Africa, there's a long history of what we now call consensual non-monogamy, predating today's ideas about monogamous love. This came in a variety of forms. Love existed in communities raising children as a single unit. It existed in polygamous marriages, wherein a man had multiple wives. It existed in the everyday acts of taking responsibility for oneself, family, and people. As today's guest has written, in the aftermath of slavery, 
the state denounced courtship and marital arrangements that African-Americans devised during slavery and presented Christian heterosexual marriage as a gateway to responsible citizenship. That means we've been taught to love a certain way by white supremacy, but we don't have to obey. Black love can look however we choose. We should question all norms that white supremacy gave us and instead freely make decisions to live and love on our own terms. So we covered a lot in the first interview and there's a couple items that I wanted to circle back on and, and dig a little deeper. So I would like for us to really start with these four pillars that you described, these four ways that Black love has been made forbidden. And you'd mentioned separation of Black marriages and families is one, it's two, racist, sexist jurisprudence, three, sexual and reproductive violence and control, and four, colorism and phenotypical stratification. So if we could, I'd love to just hear an overview of what each of these mean, starting with the separation of Black marriages and families uh, and its relation to Black love being made forbidden. Well, I began during the slave trade. I mean, where else could I begin? And when we think about it, I mean, the formation of Black love and family in the Western Hemisphere does have to include Africa because there was an involuntary migration of people of African descent from West and West Central Africa to the United States and other parts of the Americas and the Caribbean. And when we think about the violence of slavery, the disruption that it caused, we often don't think at that deep interpersonal level, that we're not just separating adolescents from parents and grandparents. We're dealing with the separation of spouses, of husbands and wives. If they're captured together, they don't end up in the same place. Or if they're captured individually, people are wondering what happened to their spouse. So to contend with this, we have to begin with the African continent and the devastation that slavery caused African families on that continent first. So that's the first place that I begin. And then when we look at slavery and the slave trade, one of the things that's really important to understand is that although the trading of um, enslaved persons, let's say in this country, was constantly happening, after the close of the American Revolutionary War, domestic slave trading exploded. We're talking about close to a million Black people being moved from the kind of mid-Atlantic, upper Atlantic, East Coast, all the way south and across, south and southwest. And what does that mean? We're talking about the immediate sale of children being torn away from their families, um, spouses being torn away from one another. We're also looking at, when we, when we think about th that period after the close of the American Revolutionary War, up through um, the, the, the Civil War, up to the Civil War, I should say, um, we're also looking at 
um, especially a lot of male enslaved African descendants being hired out by their owners so that their owners can make money on their labor while they work for someone else. Sometimes not seeing their spouses for even up to decades. I've seen cases like that in the records. So there were all kinds of arrangements. And then when we think about the fact that the kinds of plantation structures that we saw in the miniseries Roots, and I know generationally many of us are are quite far from from Roots. I haven't seen the the newer version of Roots, um, so I'm not sure what they showed there. But they showed you know kind of large plantations. That was not really the landscape for most people of African descent. We had at times two or three enslaved persons, six or seven enslaved persons on one property, on a farm maybe in many locations, often separated by, you know, a mile or distances from other farms. And so in order not to marry a family member or to be in a relationship, a romantic relationship with a family member, they would often choose spouses in other places. And the enslaved communities had their own designations for their courtship and marital traditions. They would talk about sweethearting when you're getting to know someone intimately. You're beginning to express affection and beginning to court somebody. And they would uh, and they would talk about taking up. And that was a serious relationship. You know, it could be seen as as marriage, basically, a serious relationship where they're they're together, they're a couple, they're an item. They also use the language of, and this just tells us what we're dealing with, abroad marriages, right? Because if their spouses resided on a different farm or a different property, a different plantation, oftentimes they would not be able to visit with one another, but once a week or every two weeks, maybe twice a week. So, Marriages were disrupted by the cycles of labor, the demands of labor for enslaved persons. And I remember reading in the record, Jay, about one enslaved father and husband who would go to see his wife and children on a weekly basis. And he had to cross a river in order to see them. And sometimes when the tide was high and and the river would get very muddy, you know, he could get stuck going across and it could take him such a long time to get across that river. And she talked about how his owner would actually have his, they might've said britches back then, his pants removed and whipped for being late. So just things like that. Imagine being whipped for going to spend time with your wife and your children. And she also talked about how oftentimes he would come to see them bloody and torn up. And she talked about how her mother would wash and iron his clothes and grease the sores on his skin to soothe them, to provide a balm for him. And I actually point out that that is a kind of love and connection and intimacy. As much as I'm critical of um, patriarchal marital and coupling arrangements as an imposition from the Euro-Western dating and marriage traditions, I basically make the argument in the book that I don't see this kind of loving as that no matter how much it might seem to mimic, this is a kind of love and affection that only p- people 
who have been made property understand what that means and how healing that kind of love and connection can be. It was it was so moving. I found myself crying so many times. And I'm not a crier as I read some of these stories from either the, the WPA files or other primary source documents. So there were, in other words, there were a number of arrangements during slavery that made a normal marital life difficult. And of course, this bleeds over into the problem of sexual violence, assault, and um, reproductive violation. But another form of separation was, I would argue, when um, occurred when white um, white handlers, whether it was an owner or um, some sort of white supervisor that might have been connected to the labor system, any white man who wanted to, or white adolescent who wanted to take advantage of enslaved Black adolescents and women could pretty much do it, right? At will, they could do it. And so to me, that also that kind of violation that we know was rampant during slavery also put a wedge between couples, between married couples or couples that were sweethearting or taking up or in a broad marriages. How could it not? How could it not when a partner knew or a husband knew that he could not defend the woman he loved against that kind of intrusion? What kind of psychological impact did that have? What kind of wall of separations could that impose upon a couple? So I haven't really talked about that issue in terms of imposing a kind of emotional and psychological separation, but I think it did. It had that kind of impact as well. So the psychological implications, and I know you mentioned that your work hasn't jumped into that necessarily. But in your research, uh, have you come across any theories around what the implications could be? Or do you have any theories yourself that you may may have in mind from experience, but may have not uh, written about yet? This is something that we need to do um, more of. George Gray, um, she has written about post-traumatic slave syndrome. And I tell you, we need more people to think about that. And, And it's very complicated. It's a it's a balancing act. One, we don't want to promote that narrative that the only thing that we have inherited is pathology and pain and um, dysfunction as a result of slavery and anti-Black racism and violence um, in this country and other parts of the African diaspora. We don't want to promote that narrative because that is not all there is to Black experience. But we cannot fully heal if we don't investigate all of the aspects of the abuse that our ancestors suffered and that many of us continue to suffer as a result of slavery, colonialism, anti-Black violence, and racism. And so I, I cannot say that I have studied it in any significant manner, but I will say this, I do see in the records signs of mental trauma as a result of what people suffered. Stories of people who committed suicide, for example, rather than get beat one more time. I mean, we can be anesthetized to what it means to be to be whipped, 
But that when we really think about what it means to have to be tied to a tree, which was often the case, or to be have your hands tie, roped and tied in some way so that they can keep you stale, to have your the top of your clothing ripped off of you, almost Every story that I read of when people are whipped, they're naked. I, I, it's, um, it's like a 99% of what I, they are naked. So think about the exposure in that sense and psychologically what that's doing. And to have 30 lashes across your back, I mean, just think about that. So there, I have read about people who um, jumped in water, just, I'm not going to get whipped again. I'm not going to be, be beat again. I remember reading about a woman who said she forgot all the name of her 13 children. She'd been beat so badly. So I think those testimonies are there, but we need people to comb through those records and look for signs of that. What has helped us is our spirituality. And when I talk about spirituality, I don't mean just as contained within institutional religion. I mean the manner in which we have connected with nature. We were forced to, 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 to spend a lot of time in nature. And people of African descent inherited, brought over from Africa and, and other generations, later generations inherited a certain kind of appreciation for nature, for the forest, hunting traditions, agricultural, farming, fishing, the connections that we have forged with nature and how spirituality plays a role in that, understanding how the divine is important for a successful hunt, for a successful net of fish, understanding what it means to connect to the fact that this is life out here in this forest with me. So I'm talking about that farming traditions. I know of Black farmers who pray over their crops, who take a very spiritual approach to farming. All of that heals the soul. Anytime we engage life, that's a healing experience. It doesn't matter if it's a plant, if it's an animal, if it's another person, that is a healing experience. So that that held us. That saved us in many cases. And then the actual experience of religion, of believing in a higher power, that there is a higher power that, that's that got me, that loves me, that can protect me, that's got me. Now, some of that has come, no doubt, with certain kinds of colonial ideological, theological beliefs, um, I would argue. But I think we have to both end in our in our experiences of Christianity, the the type that emerged out of the slave experience, but especially, especially in the post-emancipation experience. I'm, I'm talking about Christianity now, but also their African heritage religions, Islam, some Blacks also practice Buddhism, martial arts. Those are the things, those are the kinds of traditions that I think have actually sustained us. We know from the research of psychologists, nurses, I've read studies where they have, have done work with Black cancer patients or Black patients su um, suffering with terminal illness, and they live longer and more productive and fulfilling lives. Those who are connected to some sort of spiritual community, religious community, faith is a, is a very, very powerful element in preserving the human spirit body, mind, and soul.
And so that has helped us. There's no doubt about it. That has helped us, even if sometimes it is coupled with certain traditions that are harmful to us in other ways. And um, and so it's up to us as scholars and practitioners to, to continue to, to um, make whatever is harmful accessible. So another thing I should say, and this is one of the harms, I hope it's changing now with so many athletes and entertainers and actors coming out and speaking about mental health and wellness. I really hope it's changing, if even slowly. But one of the harms, for example, I'm going to talk about the Christian experience because that's the experience I know the most, having grown up in a Christian church environment. There is a a, a very strong belief or notion out there that prayer, and prayer is helpful. It is important. It does a lot. I am not going to say that it doesn't have an impact, but that prayer is all I need, right? Or God is miraculously going to heal me of this disease or whatever's going on, or miraculously going to make sure my son doesn't go to jail today in court or whatever. No, I think God, however one defines God or the or the ultimate or the creator, the higher power, works with us to use our brains, to use our resources, to make things happen, to 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 change circumstances. And I think sometimes we imbibe theologies that actually prohibit or prevent us, actually hinder us from seeking especially mental health services. So that that is, we need work in our communities on that. Um, personally, I would suggest to every person of African descent, given what has happened to us, that if you can afford it, if you have um, mental health resources through your um, job, a lot of us have it and don't even realize it. And it's not necessarily easy to find a provider. You got to kind of test people out and and see what works for you and really put the energy and investment in it. But I, I actually encourage all people of African descent, if you have those services, use them, even if you think you don't need them. If it's a, if it's a benefit, if you can get six sessions a year, use them. Why not? There's For something sure. in your life, right, that you want to. So we don't do enough with mental health. We don't understand it well. We don't investigate it. We think it's, oh, just get over it and be happy. God will, you know, brighten up. Christ will bring you over the hump. And it's 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 not always like that, especially given the trauma that we have seen transgenerationally and we have experienced. It's It seems to me that there may be significant value also in, at least from what I understand about Black psychologists or African-centered psychology and an approach that may be more focused or centered around our unique experience than perhaps just going by whatever the standard book is. Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, yes. I remember um, one of my Daltro students, she, I mean, I wasn't the kind of therapist on the committee, but I learned a lot from her. Was it Naeem Akbar? Who was the the scholar who did a lot of um, African-centered psychology? I think it might have been Naeem Akbar. He is one of them, yeah. Yeah, I remember she used a lot of his work to argue for a womanist, communal-centered approach to counseling. And I have met, um, in fact, one of the 
um, very powerful womanist scholars who was at the forefront of womanist thought, Lely Mapayan, she started her career as, um, and she was Lely Phillips back then, she started her career as a communal psychologist. And I was so intrigued by that, wanted to learn a little bit more about that. And it was encouraging whole families to engage in mental health um, services, to engage together, and even wider communities to engage together in mental health services. Because if one part of the family is ill, it means that there's probably more illness in the family than we might be willing to admit or might suspect uh, right away. And so I absolutely think that's important. The other thing, Jay, is we, from the beginning of our experience of involuntary, I'm talking collectively and across time, right? Black people's involuntary presence in this part of the world, in the Western Hemisphere, we were we were dealing with being thingified, being not human, being excluded from the category of the human. So in, in, in many respects, we are constantly being challenged to prove our humanity, to prove, and, 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 and now it's coded in different ways, right? Blackness equals criminal. Blackness, I remember, you know, coming out of slavery and it's, you know, it's not that it's any different today in many respects. One of the things that the Black women who promoted um, social uplift, Black uplift, you know, those club women, those Black um, foremothers who were really working to quote unquote uplift the race, they were constantly dealing with Black women being reduced to prostitution. Public discourse about Black women reduced them to prostitutes. So, you know, it's less than human, subhuman, prostitutes, criminals, drug addicts, you name it. We are constantly being painted as non-human, being presented as non-human, as less than human. So an African-centered approach to psychological wellness, first of all, is going to situate the individual as uh, the individual to understand their personhood. I don't even want to talk about human. I think I'm I think I agree with the Afro-pessimists who say that we there is no hope for the category of the human anymore. They have they have they have um, monopolized it. We are outside of it, and we can't even resurrect it. And honestly, I have I did a little experiment in my book that's going to be coming out in October um, on Orisha religion in Trinidad, um, and I was looking into the Yoruba language for the concept of human, and even that concept, which is Enyan, even that concept. I talked with, um, you know, a, a Babalao and philosopher, Hola Bimbala, who's a professor of, of philosophy at um, Howard University. And he explained to me, like, Diane, even that concept includes other forms of life, like chimpanzees. I was like, wow, that's fascinating when you think of evolutionary theory and um, how humans are close to chimpanzees or homo sapiens close to chimpanzees. So it includes other spiritual entities. It's In other words, he couldn't come up with a word that just meant what human means here, supposedly a homo sapien. And I thought that was fascinating because the, of the way when we think about African cosmologies and mythologies, the way there are some that talk about how humans, animals, and plants could understand one another's languages. And some of us that have done research understand that personhood is extended beyond the so-called human. Personhood is extended to all forms of life and, and fulfilling your ethical responsibility 
And that means plants have an ethical responsibility. Animals have an ethical responsibility. Fish have an ethical responsibility. Every every aspect of life, minerals have an ethical responsibility. Every aspect of life that fulfills its ethical responsibility is a person. And and so I talk about personhood and persons more so than humans, because I I think I am convinced that they they have they have cornered that. That is for them. And and maybe there is no redemption for the human when it comes on to us. I other I actually rather use African terms, quite frankly. So we're, so we're gonna we're gonna first of all be situated in a collective, in, in a collective. And keep in mind, I'm not glorifying um, African um, ways of conceiving of person, personhood, family, kinship, community. But I do find that it has something to contribute to the world because what it what is I mean because it's because it's burdensome, Jay. It's burdensome to be to have to share everything all the time. That's not always fun, right? To have to be responsible to the other all the time. That can be a burden, but can, it can be a burden we love to carry because we know that the reciprocal, the symmetrical benefits and rewards are also coming to us. Everyone in the system will be cared for in some way. So I think that already, think about all of these young white adolescent males that are shooting up schools. We're thinking about gun laws and we're thinking about, which I totally agree with, I absolutely agree that we do not need these kinds of weapons um, in the hands of these young people. Um, why are we making, creating these kind of weapons anyway? Um, what kind of psychology, psychological disposition does that come from? But they are lonely. They are isolated. They don't know who they are because whiteness is even an empty identifier. If whiteness is an is a human identity, as I said, they have cornered it. If whiteness is a human identity that gives you access to the human, that gives you power over, and now you have these young white males, some of them from working class and poor communities, and they're realizing, I don't have all these things that whiteness says, says I should have. I'm looking at all these other people that I despise because that's the kind of, that's what I learned about my whiteness, that I should despise all these other people. I'm looking at all these other people that I despise, and they seem to be getting all these opportunities, which, you know, that always floored me. Like, really? Okay. But they seem to be getting all these opportunities. I'm mad at the world. I'm mad at people at school who are making fun of me, who are doing this, who are doing that. I don't have any purpose. So when you're situated in a community where, first of all, you are greeted every day, no one ever goes through a day and not sees, not see a neighbor, not engage in conversation. What is conversation? It is affirmation and connection, not, not fulfill some sort of role. Sharing and giving and serving also heals the spirit. And that's what communal formation does for people. I am because we are. That is a powerful way of conceiving of the self. There is no I am if there is no we are. And that is so different than what many youth are growing up with in the U.S. American experience. 
We are taught that the ideal is to be independent, is to be able to do it alone, is to be able to secure my nuclear family by myself, is to be able to dominate and, and to conquer in this capitalist world. And that means going for self at the expense of others. That way of being is toxic. And it eats away at the human spirit. It eats away at our sense of connection with others. And I think that is one of the most powerful insights that African peoples and a lot of indigenous cultures have when it comes on to individual, the formation of the self as an individual and the community as a collective, that they're so deeply intertwined that they almost cannot be separated. What do you think the implications are of us becoming more and more ingrained in this idea of individualism and farther away from communal identities? On some levels, I think that something's got to give. We're going to be so affected that even therapists know that the disconnection promotes dis-ease. That in other words, we're going to go so to the edge as a society that we're going to have to find our way back to something else, to some sort of connection. The conservative commentator, um, David Brooks, wrote an article in The Atlantic. I still remember this, and I thought about my Black Love book because that's exactly Exactly the argument I made. The nuclear family was a mistake. This is the conservative David Brooks, you know, commentator on the news hour. And but he wrote a huge piece. The nuclear family was a mistake and argues how it has destroyed connection and community and support that people need. And, and I'm thinking, you just figured that out. We've known that, you know, it's been in our blood as people of African descent. Right. So I think even some of them, you know, some of Euro-Americans are realizing that this way of being is very, very harmful. So I, I don't see any redemption in that kind of individualism because what it ultimately puts forward, I mean, there can be healthy competition, but I think it, put for, it, it, it puts forward toxic competition. And at some point, you are going to need support and aid from someone else. And so aggressive, gross individualism will eventually turn in on itself for the person who is operating in that, in that fashion. You mentioned this idea of the nuclear family and how that was not necessarily an African way of approaching family structure. So I'm curious, in your research, what's your understanding of the different ways that stru family structures have looked and, and could look in a way that's more beneficial to our condition today? So first of all, people have many mothers and many fathers. I think that's really, really powerful. And it's hard for us in the West to wrap our minds around that. I mean, I've talked to African people who said, when I was young, I kind of didn't even fully know who my real mother was. So in polygamous households, for example, or even just in households where there might not be any kind of plural marriages being practiced, your own biological mother's sisters, they're your mother's. They're, they're your mothers, your biological mothers, siblings, children. They are your siblings. They are not cousins. They are your siblings. So just think about what a sibling means 
versus a cousin typically in kind of Western arranged um, family structures and what a mother is. Just think about having many mothers and fathers. That's powerful already as a structure. And then you often had compound structures where oftentimes there was a period where there was the mother-child unit. I know this is true for the Igbo um, society, which is um, which is what I've learned from Ifi Amadouime's work. Her book, Reconstructing Africa, is just a, a, a powerful, powerful piece. And her book, Male Daughters, Female Husbands, is another great one. So the mother-child unit where the mother provided for her children. It wasn't like they were sitting there waiting for the husband to go out and make all the money and provide everything. No, the mother, she farmed, she cultivated, she provided for her children as well. So there's that close kind of embrace with the mother, right? The matrifocal unit was such an important part of the family unit. And so also extended kin, which were just kin, right? What we would consider extended kin, living around and being around in the family, different age groups, right? So multiple age groups of children, for children to have older children and younger children to be in relationship with. That teaches, that teaches children a lot, right? To not just be an only child or to not, so to have a family structure where they're learning from the older children and they're also modeling something for, 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 for the younger children, those kinds of structures. Um, you know, I read something uh, about uh, Western women, women in the United States in particular, having trouble nursing their children, um, you know, breastfeeding. And they were comparing women here to African women in this particular study. It was an extensive study. And what they found, interestingly enough, you know, people have this idea, oh, it's so natural to African women. Even that is kind of a, a stereotypical way of questioning African women's um, womanhood or humanity, kind of animalizing African women, like, oh, just pull out a breast and everything is just working fine. And what the researchers found was that African women have as much trouble breastfeeding as Western women. They have the, but they fix it more quickly, more efficiently. You know why, Jay? Because their mothers, who are oftentimes still young enough to, you know, to, to really help out, come and stay with them for an extensive period of time and teach them exactly what they need to do to get that baby to latch onto the breast. Do, do you know what I mean? So it's that kind of support. You know, people have to go to lactation specialists and like, but no, they, they have the same problems, but they have that community of support. It is a given that mom is going to come and she's going to stay for months, right? Things like that. So it it, it is, um, it is a, a value system where People in the family unit, first of all, the family unit is large, it's extensive. Um, people who are part of the family don't always live in the same household because of maybe um, um, cultural expectations, because of labor, you know, their work, their profession. They don't always live in the same household, but other family members might live in that household. So there's a lot of flexibility, a lot of fluidity. Um, there might also be visitors that become part of the family structure, so to speak, right? People visiting, people passing through, people on their way. So what I, what, what I would argue is that 
We brought those kinship structures with us. When I read about how Black families after slavery, particularly those who acquired wide swaths of land, um, how they organized themselves, the historians are showing us that they organized themselves in very flexible ways, sometimes matrifocal households, sometimes large extended kin. They were, they were continuing to practice those ways of being family. Um, and that was demonized, especially with the Mornahan Report in 1965. That was demonized. What is wrong with Black people? Why are they so poor? Why can't we overcome this poverty gap? How can we do a study to make the case that we need some sort of remedial program or programs to overcome this rather than address and attack the issue from the beginning? The anti-Black racism, the reduction of Black people to property and the stolen wealth of Black people, um, the um, the unwillingness of this nation to allow Black people to exercise their citizenship rights, at, even after slavery, right, when they actually became formal citizens, and the terrorism, the actual sheer terrorizing of Black people for over 100 years in a very direct way from 1865 to 1965, that's what's wrong with Black people, right? That's what's wrong with Black people. Tell me you're going to, we should be marveling at the Black people who were able to be successful. We shouldn't be asking what's wrong with the rest of y'all. We should be saying, how could this have even happened, given what Black folks have been under? And so those family structures were gifts. I mean, those aunties and uncles that people could go to in times of trouble and need, who were right there, they were accessible in the family structure. Um, and I have seen, um, you know, documentaries and read reports that when Blacks were coming up North, Black folks were coming up North and even entering, moving, even after moving from slums into, um, you know, government housing um, units, what, what are often called projects, that those family structures were oftentimes there, maybe not always in the same household. For example, those aunties and mothers had a lot of power in those projects in the 1950s and 60s. And they, they had the respect that the typical mother would have in the traditional African community. They had that respect. And even though, yes, you had a lot of um, teenagers, adolescents um, getting pregnant and not being married, it didn't mean that the fathers of the children were totally absent from those children's lives and that uncles and brothers would also fill in. Now, I know some, some of that has dissipated in, in many places. I, I get that. But you saw some of those structures happening. But people in the U.S. Senate, people who were producing these reports, um, looked at those structures and couldn't see anything but chaos and disorganization. They didn't see the organization of community love through those structures. They saw chaos because it didn't look like the white Anglo nuclear family. And, and it was um, um, uh, marked um, dysfunctional. And we live with that. We still sit with that. But I think um, many of our working class and poor Black families still 
hold on to some of those structures. I've often wondered if, if like, I mean, truly wealthy black families do as well. That's, that's something I would love to do because think about it. If you're, I'm not talking about people who have to work for a living. I'm talking about people who don't like truly wealthy black families. I wonder if they retain those kinds of structures too, because you kind of have to kind of be with your family. The, you know, you can't really be around a lot of other people when you're truly wealthy like that, right? So that's that's a study I would love to see somebody do. How do the truly, truly wealthy Black people live? Do they also retain those those kind of extended kin networks, those extended structures? It wouldn't surprise me if they do. That's fascinating. And so if there's these different structures that we brought with us from Africa— did slavery actually then break up the family structure or did we adapt and put in place these different structures that we've had all along? I, I think slavery, um, in a very ironic way, actually, um, it, well, definitely dissipated it. It definitely broke it up because um, polygamy, uh, polygamous marriages were not officially permitted. I mean, it was a, it's against the law to be a bigamist, you know, in the aftermath of slavery. Um, and, um, and so slavery definitely, um, I think, broke up polygamous marriages. I'm not talking about, and, and this is really a pet peeve of mine, Jay, when people, people kill me. Well, we're being polygamous anyway, because he's got two girlfriends and that's not polygamy. Polygamy is a marriage system. Having to polygamy, polygamous um, um, partners, polygamous spouses can also cheat. <laughs> you know, polygamy is a marriage system. It's not about cheating. It's not about plural relationships. Polygamy is a marriage system. And we have to remember that a lot of these marriage systems emerge, these early marriage systems, whether it's polygamous or monogamous or something else, polyandrous, they, they emerge in cultures where romantic love was not privileged. They emerge in cultures where marriage did a lot of things for entire communities, let alone the individual. So, you know, we, we, we're thinking about it through this romantic lens and we're thinking about the cheating and, and also, also, you know, we can go into that. I mean, you, you know, notorious cheaters, of course, they're alienated from themselves. There's something going on with anybody who is, you know, a womanizer or it, there's something that they're running from. They, they have intimacy problems. There is something going on with anyone who operates like that. There is something going on. And particularly if there's deception and that kind of thing, there's definitely something going on, right? We don't want to promote that kind of behavior, but that's just something altogether different. So yes, we, we have someone like W.E.B. Du Bois talking about how slavery kind of, you know, he's looking at it from a monogamous lens, that monogamy is the the proper way to be married, that saying that slavery kind of promoted, you know, these polygamous relationships and things like that. But, you know, not really. When you, when you're, when you can't even honor, there was no way that people could in slavery have a, a solemn sacred ceremony to marry one person and then have another solemn sacred ceremony to marry another. Couldn't do that. So no, slavery broke up polygamy. I would say that it definitely did that. But it definitely encouraged the matrifocal unit. It encouraged the the power of mothers um, in family formation and the matrifocal unit. Definitely it did. 
In fact, um, Tara Hunter, oh, she's one of my favorite historians. She writes, um, she's a Princeton scholar who wrote a phenomenal book, um, Bound in Wedlock, whose book I, I actually cite quite a bit in my text about um, 19th century African-American marriages. And she actually says that even though it's true um, that many people of African descent did marry and form family units in slavery. They were not permanent. She says because of the domestic slave trade, the massive interstate slave trade that emerged, especially after the Revolutionary War, what the most prominent unit was the matri mother-child unit, the matrifocal unit. That was the most prominent family unit, the most stable and prominent family unit. So I think slavery, in a very ironic way, also promoted that. And instead of criminalizing that, marking that as dysfunctional, we need to celebrate that and and and, and rediscover in many respects for parts of our community that, that is that are ailing the role of fathers. And I'm at the point, Jay, where I want to say one of the roles of fathers is to develop what I call motherness qualities. I think motherness is non-gendered. I use this term in my book that's coming out in October, Obia Orisha and Religious Identity in Trinidad. Um, the subtitle is Africana Nations and the Power of Black Sacred Imagination. I, 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 I talk about what I call motherness. And I think Anyone can adopt motherness qualities. Children can, adolescents, fathers can. And I think we need a little bit more motherness in this world, quite frankly. Can you can you dive in a little bit more to this concept of motherness? Clearly, um, biological motherhood um, is probably the first image we think of when it comes on to motherness. And whether what is happening hormonally inside the mother's body as she is intimately connected to the life inside of her and or the cultural shaping of mothers, whether it's a both and or I, I don't even want to dispute that. What we know is that ideal motherhood is about love, protection, care, and provision, and healthy sacrifice for your children. I call it showing up for your child every day. That's what I call it. Motherness is showing up for your child every day. And so can fatherness be that. But what we know is the mother whose umbilical cord was connected to this child, you know, certainly things can go wrong hormonally, you know, um, mothers, you know, being overwhelmed and suffering from um, postpartum depression um, and harming their children. Certainly that can happen. But in most cases, the reason we've been able to live as a species is because of that instant skin-to-skin -skin contact between mother and baby and the nurturing and support and love that that mother gives. And of course, fathers do the same and they should be expected to do the same. But I think um, sometimes, you know, you know, Jane, my father told me that when he found out my mother was pregnant, with my my sisters, uh, my my my, I, my mother had twins. Her first um, first pregnancy, she had twins. Although one of my sisters didn't live very long after being born, my father said he was so afraid. He was so so scared. My parents were not married. They had been dating. They had known each other for six years. But he was so afraid, and he said, "I you know he wanted to." 
he he just he says, I, I, I understand why some of these young men run, because it is such a scary thing to know that you are going to be responsible for this life for at least 18 years. It's a scary thing. And one of my friends told me the same thing. When she got pregnant, she said, I understand why men run. It's wrong, but it's a scary thing. And if we can tap into that and deal with that and really expose, I think, young men, all men, to the joys of fatherhood and let them know that you can adopt motherness qualities. You can adopt some of these qualities of nurturance, of care, of vulnerability with your child, and you can sustain them because hopefully they're fulfilling to you too. just like that, we're at the end of this episode of Black History Year. This podcast is produced by Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit Black media company. At Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, a people without knowledge of their past, history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. And I'm guessing you probably feel that's important too. I mean, here you are at the end of a podcast about Black history. You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value this work. Push Black exists because we saw we had to take matters into our own hands. And you make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most people give about five or 10 bucks a month, but everything makes a difference. Thanks for supporting the work. The Black History Year production team includes Tarek Alani, Leslie Taylor Grover, Brooke Brown, Siobhan Chapman, Albany Jones, Brianna Lambach, Garciella Melotesi, Zane Murdoch, Tasha Taylor, and Darren Wallace. Producing the podcast, we have Sydney Smith and Sasha Kai Parker, who also edits the show. And Black History Year's executive producer is Julian Walker. And I'm Jay from Push Black. Peace. <laughs>